Welcome back to Civis Pacem. This episode is conversation with our first guest, Dr. David Basold. He is the Dean of Studies at John F. Kennedy Institute in Berlin and Managing Director of Graduate School of North American Studies. He is leading expert on Canadian foreign policy, author of several books and articles on Canada, and, most importantly, a wonderful person with whom it's a great honor to talk to. In the episode, we discuss several topics, including the configuration of the international system, the future of European security, nuts and bolts of German politics, and the US-Russia relations. If you like the episode, share it with friends and subscribe to our channels. Hello, David, and welcome to Civis Pacem. Uh, I'm really glad you're here. Uh, from me and Vava, I really want to thank you for being our first guest uh, in the podcast. And I guess we're ready to start our conversation. And first question I really want to ask you, so if you were to describe our world where we live in, in two, three words, maybe even one, what those words would be? Well, if I only can pick one, first of all, thank you for um, inviting me. And also thanks for the privilege and honor to be the first person on your program. Um, if I were to describe the world in just one word, I would go for multipolar. Multipolar. That's interesting. Um, because the question is, uh, I guess like 20 years ago, this would be a little bit maybe ridiculous question in terms of it was so predictable and people talked about the end of history in terms of it was 90s. But as you said, like multipolar, I guess uh, maybe you can unpack a little bit this uh, term in terms of multipolar, in terms of what do you, um, how, how do you see multipolar world? Is it like dangerous or is it, is it, or is it normal to be multipolar? How do you like um, unpack this word, I would say? I, I would maybe add another word starting with an M, and I think that's maybe misconceptions or misunderstandings. So I think per se, as you could see, if you go back in history and go to the, um, also back to 1814, 1815, the Council of Europe, um, the Vienna Congress, you see that there can be something like a stable multipolar system. Um, but I think if we look at, at today's world, we certainly no longer live in a world that was used to be called unipolar, which also doesn't make sense in a sort of scientific way, right? Because, I mean, there cannot be something like a unipolar system as such in, in that sense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Only maybe a, the most important or biggest power in the world that is unmatched in terms of its its political and military or economic power. And I th think with the rise of, um, first of all, China, but also with regard to regional powers. And it's sort of unclear whether Russia now is, is an mm -hmm. extremely important regional power or if it's still a global power that we see that um, there are spheres of influence. I think um, if I'm, I don't speak Russian, but if I'm mm -hmm. not mistaken, even Vladimir Putin talks about um, spheres of influence. Um, yeah, I think that's something we, we see now with regard to the South China Sea, for instance. We also mm. see something like that with regard to um, some countries considering certain regions their, their backyard. I think um, there we have something like a Monroe Doctrine that also some other countries seem to have. So mm. I would say that's the second point. So after 
a multipolar, or the multipolar world is also one where we see a lot of misunderstandings and misconceptions of each other. And I think it's also due to what we now refer to as the West, meaning most of the European countries and, and Canada, the US, maybe also Australia, New Zealand, some may even add South Korea uh, or Japan, that they don't seem to know a lot about um, the political systems of, say, Russia, China, Brazil, Mm -hmm. um, so at least when, when we look at Germany or the US, I think there is a lot of lack of knowledge about how these systems operate, what their interests are. So, mm -hmm. yeah. so do you think it's more like an unpredictable world where we live in? Because for me, for me, I would describe it for me, on the one hand, it's a, it's a big time of hope because technology, it, it, it seems like, you know, in 20, 30 years, maybe with modern technologies, we could solve lots of like world problems. But as you describe it, because the world is multipolar, it's also one of the most dangerous time probably would we live in. Uh, for me, this is how I feel because maybe it's like even more dangerous time than let's say Cold War, because in Cold War you had like rules of the game, system was clearly defined, kind of US design, what the US wanted to save status quo. But now it feels like kind of everyone kind of like, tries to grab way more way, way much power so for me for me it's not really it's kind of like um, very hard to say that we live in like a safe world so to speak so do you have maybe this feeling maybe i have a different opinion because i also lived throughout the cold war or the end of sort of the east-west conflict um i think it depends how you look at it i mean if um as with most things, I, I have the impression that our world is now characterized by people who think very much in black and white terms or who want to have very concrete answers. I think something that we are now more aware of is what you call the Anthropocene or the impact of mankind or sort of man-made climate change. And I think that's certainly something that we are more aware of than we used to be in, in say, the 80s and the 90s and that will certainly have a big impact on our lives. Um, as such, it's it's tricky to say. There are things that are trends that actually seem to suggest that we live in a better world. That's sort of the 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 pinker argument, right? That you have um, actually less people dying of of diseases, bar COVID maybe, and that you have less infant mortality. That people generally grow richer. Um, that they are more healthy on average even if we see an incredible increase in, in the number of people living on this planet. So um, for me, it's always a question um, of how you look at things. And for some, the glass is half full, for others, it's half empty. So I think that's sort of the, the aspect. I wouldn't per se say that we, maybe you're, you're right in the sense that we live in a more dangerous world because we don't seem to have, or we don't seem to be aware of the rules that govern our world. Mm -hmm. um, those military strategists, both in the Soviet Union back then and in the US, they knew what mutually assured destruction were. They had nuclear um, strategies or doctrines that basically led to, well, what they called the cold peace, right? Mm -hmm. um, and if you think about how many countries now own nuclear weapons or who have a nuclear weapons program, we now have Pakistan, we have India, we have um, Iran, which is a sort of unclear or ambiguous approach to nuclear um, to nuclear not only power but also weapons we have North Korea I think in that sense we are we now live in a world that is 
more unstable on the one hand. On the other hand, we also have those countries that still haven't used those weapons. So, I mean, we see a lot of conventional warfare now, but I mean, even with the recent conflicts in in the Ukraine or in between India and Pakistan over Kashmir, we never saw the use of nuclear weapons. I mean, at times they do some saber rattling, but I think it's more a rhetorical aspect. So I wouldn't be that terribly afraid because I still think that most military strategists and decision makers know what that would mean. And that's an incredible escalation. Of okay. Do you think the world is uh, predictable, though? Because I guess uh, we as like social scientists, I mean, scientists in general, the, one of the main aims, like goals of us is like to predict the world. And it seems like the world, in terms of like, even with COVID, is out of control and it's so unpredictable. Then um, on the one hand, I guess like the standard um, positivist uh, agenda in social sciences is kind of like tricky because you cannot really predict the world in terms of what going to be, it, it feels almost like impossible at the moment, especially after COVID, as, as it seems for me. Um, but what do you think? Can we still kind of like make solid predictions in terms of what's going to be with the world? I don't think we can, but I, I would also question whether we could ever do that in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I think what may have changed now is that, um, especially if you look at Germany, there seems to be this idea that we can control for all sorts of possibilities or all sorts of things that could go wrong or could, I mean, happen in a certain way. So I think this, what Germans sometimes call Volkaskomentalität, so meaning this idea that you can ensure yourself or your life against all risks. I think that this is something that um, still comes to the fore now. I mean, there were some German thinkers like Ulrich Beck who had the Risk Society or Risikogesellschaft <coughs> who already had that idea that um, people seem to have the idea that they need more control over their lives maybe or I mean at that time it was still said that they are accepting it and um, I have the impression that it's now sort of the tide is changing and, and people seem to actually be okay if they sort of ha at least have the, the th that they think that they can control their lives and I, I would dispute that I think it's um, there are certain risks that you simply cannot mitigate I mean if you cross a street and if there is a green traffic light it doesn't mean that you cannot be overrun by a car I mean that's maybe a very odd example but I mean there are certain things that we have to accept that are just you know facts of life and I think um, at times we now seem to forget that I mean again if we go back to what I said about Pinker and, and, and just the statistics um, we actually seem to live in a in a more stable and more um, risk-free or um, I mean less lethal world than we used to live that's first of all true for the world as such apparently according to statistics um, but it's especially true in places like Germany where I mean the risk of you know being um, the victim of a homicide is actually less than it used to be 20 years ago but I mean the way that the society behaves seems to be the other way around right that they always seem to be afraid I can see that with for instance my two kids who are allowed to go to their school which is something like maybe four or five hundred meters from where we live there are some parents who call that irresponsible but I mean then you think how should they ever grow up? I mean, I cannot, I cannot walk them to school until they're 18. So um, I think that's something where you see that kind of mindset. And 
Again, I don't think there is a right or wrong. It's just that people don't seem to openly discuss these things. Yeah. And I mean, that's, I think that's, a, that's a, a problem or that's something we should work, work on. Uh, that's really good words in terms of, uh, it looks like people like in two big camps, left and right, and they don't really discuss things in terms of like more pragmatic way because there is no like right answer, but we still should like openly but, discuss. Since you invited me to also <laughs> ask you a question, I mean, what would you characterize as left and right? Because I had the impression left and right is now something that is is good for creating a certain group identity or for maybe mobilizing political camps. I mean, if you take COVID, for instance, once again as as an example, and would go through tweets or social media campaigns and press releases. It was interesting to see that uh, the political party that um, called for the closure of borders, that called for strong measures against COVID back in March, April last year, 2020, was the AFD, mm -hmm. sort of the right-wing party in the German Bundestag. And then they completely flip-flopped. So, I mean, now they are actually openly encouraging not to wear a mask. They call the mask a sort of a symbol of something close to um, slavery or to sort of oppression. And I mean, it's, I find it fascinating that, I mean, we refer to the AFD and I think in, with, in terms of their ideology, rightly so, um, to a right-wing party or even outright Nazi party. And then, and then again, we have um, parties on the left who back then seemed to suggest, well, you know, we have people who die every day and there are also people who die of the flu. And now, I mean, back then some party representatives said those things and now they wouldn't say that again because, I mean, now they seem to um, have a completely different opinion. So I, I don't know what, what left and right is in that regard. If we talk about things that go back to the mm -hmm. 80s, I think it makes sense. If you see that the left party in Germany, for instance, calls for, or the NDP in, in, in Canada, parts of them seem to suggest that it makes sense that Canada or Germany um, actually leave NATO. I think that's what I would consider left in terms of security policy, as well as this Western orientation, NATO alliance, um, higher de defense spending. I think that's sort of something that some labeled the right or the, the sort of politics of the right in terms of defense and security. But otherwise, I think it has also become a label that doesn't make a lot of sense for me. Yeah, so, I mean, what, what would you what would your take be on, on left and right? What is left and right now? I guess it's really country-dependable, like dependent variable, because as you, as you mentioned, it, it varies. But I guess like looking at the U.S., because everyone kind of looks at the U.S., it's like this tradition to, to kind of like a grateful, like just, just look at the U.S. as an example of uh, some good governance and stuff like this. I don't know. People still do this, even though it's, it's a little bit ridiculous. They have like this like clear polarization. They have this clear left, clear right. Like both camps hate each other. They don't really have common ground. And then they kind of impose those, I don't know, maybe they, they, they actually impose via media this idea that people should be divided, they should be left and right, and it's normal. But for me, it's like how we, we couldn't really solve issues without like finding common ground. And of course, it's like normal when people have different opinions. I feel it's like just, it's the part of democracy uh, and it's just normal. So for me, uh, it, it really depends because then, as you said, in Germany, it's one thing. In France, like it's, it's left and right. It's also another thing. It's really country-dependent depend variable. So, yeah, for me, it's hard also to say, you know, it's like, it's like tricky ground when, when you start talk, talking about, um, and also about issues, as you mentioned, with COVID. It's also very interesting how they all flip-flopped and everything changes. But 
Also, I want to ask you about COVID because COVID changed a lot of stuff. So how do you feel about COVID, uh, the life after COVID in terms of, on the one hand, there is, was a big progress with science and vaccination. And of course, like they developed vaccine in one year. But how do you feel about the world after COVID? Because uh, this was um, in Munich Security Conference, I guess, Secretary General of the United Nations, he actually discussed this issue in terms of whether the world after COVID will be more, um, like more, um, more eager to cooperate or whether it will be more like prone to conflict and further divide. Um, how do you feel about this sort of post, post, post-COVID world? I think I once again have to disappoint you that I won't pick sides because I think we see, we see um, an ambiguous trend. On the one hand, we see that uh, we see a renationalization. So for instance, if you take Germany, uh, they now say we need to have something like production capacities for vaccines, we should have nationalized um, or we, we should have a national mask production or sort of security, uh, not security, um, sort of protection gear, protective gear that we um, have to be able to be produced in Germany and not sort of being shipped in from China. Um, <clears throat> and on the other hand, we we certainly have things like maybe early warning systems, I could imagine, um, so that once there is again an outbreak, and I, I don't think it's a question if there will be another outbreak of some sort of viral infection or virus disease, but rather when that happens. So I'm expecting some kind of, not necessarily international treaty, but some sort of coordination mechanism. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> otherwise, I think the pandemic will come or will lead to a certain degree of soul searching uh, in in almost all countries and I think that um, one of the countries that will be hit hardest in hindsight will be actually Germany because um, they had this idea that they are mastering the first wave brilliantly and that we, I mean the Germans were such an advanced country but now if you look at vaccination rates, if you look in percentage of the population, if you look at sort of getting out of the lockdown in some sort of coherent way that is could be considered responsible or like without having to close down everything after four six, six weeks. I think Germany is actually really at the bottom of the table. I mean, we, we see even that in, in, in places that Germany sniffed at like Spain and Italy, let alone Finland and, and those places, even now Britain yeah. or France, that they have a more coherent system. And I think one reason is that Um, my interpretation is that the overall strategy was never openly discussed in Germany so um, I I have the impression that Angela Merkel tried to follow a strategy that could technically resembles that of Australia and New Zealand basically bringing down the virus trying to eradicate it not and then sort of controlling for the for the the small pockets where um, the virus still is and I question whether that, I'm not a virologist, but I mean, I just question if I look at Germany on the map where it is, I mean, that it is sort of a hub for all sorts of, you know, economic um, uh, traffic. I mean, the, the trucks that roll over German autobahns every day, and I mean, the kind of the kind of exchanges we have with the rest of the world, whether that that's a feasible idea in the first place. But I think we never had a, a proper discussion about that and um, also there was never really parliamentary debate and I think what we have really missed is that we came to a, um, 
nationwide strategy that was accepted by at least a solid majority of the population. And it's something we can see now in Italy, we can see something like that in, in France, where we have high infection rates, maybe also on average a high number of deaths. But I mean, for instance, it was clear that they wouldn't close down schools again. And I mean, that's something that happened here. And um, if you close down schools, you always need to have an idea how you want to reopen them. And um, how we want to reopen the different sectors in Germany is still unclear. And I mean, that's, I think, terrible after um, most of the things were decided in November. And there were weeks where decision makers could have had ideas of how to do that. So, um, yeah, I'm a bit, yeah, not only critical of how the Germans behave, but I also think that Germans will really have to begin soul searching. What what is that went wrong, and how can we prevent something like that again? And you mentioned that Germany seems to be a rich country um, that seems to be able to afford like keeping stuff locked down. That's right, and I mean finance minister Scholz call it the bazooka that he has. But, I mean, there are also limits to that. I mean, of course, you can increase your public debt, but, I mean, some, someone has to sort of service those debts, and uh, that's the big question. So, um, I think there, there will be... The effects, I would predict, are especially problematic for Europe, the European Union, because I think when it comes to shouldering those debts, I, I see a lot of risks in how far... Um, that can, for instance, lead to technically the, the bankruptcy of, of states. I mean, because um, we now already see interest rates increasing and I mean, the European Central Bank will have a hard time um, sort of managing that. We still have low interest rates, but that we don't have an inflation that spirals out of control. So, well, yeah, it's, we're living in interesting times. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because Germany did really well at the, like, at the beginning of uh, like pandemic and everyone took like Germany as an example and then something went wrong. And I still couldn't really pinpoint this period of time. It was December when uh, everything, like the rates went up. Uh, and for me, it's, uh, of course, it's really, it's really weird why, why, how like this uh, virology, of course, you need to be virologist to understand, I guess, those uh, shifts and those spikes. But it's really weird because then Germany did really well, then something went wrong. And now, of course, uh, you see that Germany, yes, it's, it's just, it's just horrible vaccination campaign. It's really, uh, it's really worse than most like European countries. Um, but how do you think feel about European Union? Doesn't have to do something with European Union because maybe they, I don't know, agreed to buy this vaccine by European Union, and then Germany maybe had to wait, even though it developed one of the first countries that actually developed vaccine together with the US. Then, um, for me, it's it's hard to understand what's uh, because I guess you, you you do understand like I guess German system way way better than me because for me it was. It's still very surprising what what really went wrong when it was pretty okay at the beginning and everyone just took like Germany as an example and like they did so well they uh, they're such nice people because they st stick to rules and they really don't go to anywhere and actually rules. That's really I think that's the biggest problem that you say <laughs> they follow rules and yes when it was the time to follow rules that worked well but I think what is really lacking is that you unleash some sort of create creative spirit um, in, in, in Germany, how you deal with that situation. I mean, and it's 
for Russians or for French, uh, I mean, basically every country that um, fought Germany in the First and Second World War, I mean, Germans were always rightly so a laughing stock in terms of, you know, that they always follow orders and once you tell them that they should do something, they do it without thinking whether it makes sense or not. And I think there is a certain degree of truth to that. And I think that also creates some sort of problems. I mean, if you want to bring infection numbers down simply by having a high share of the population following orders and following the advice or the regulations, that makes sense to a certain degree. But I mean, again, if you want to open a place, um, then you also need um, a strategy, then you also need um, people who think, what if things turn out this way, that way? So you need to have a strategy that has different kind of, um, basically that integrates certain kind of um, situations or you have to model how things could develop. So I mean, there are different, so scenario planning, I think, is not a big strength of of Germans as such. You also see that in foreign policy. And coming back to the vaccination program, I think it may well be that things could have been faster in terms of the availability of vaccines if Germans had followed something like a national vaccination plan. But you see, that's not the problem. As of last week, according to the figures I read, Germany had more than one-third of the vaccines that were delivered still in a fridge or freezer. Um, so I mean, if it, so, it's less a problem of actually getting the vaccines. Of course, we are not as fast as Britain and Israel, but um, in terms of the availability of the vaccines, as such, Germany should be able to do better. I mean, if you have something like a stockpile of thirty to forty percent of vaccines that haven't been used, then you really have a problem. And we are seem to have all sorts of petty discussions on things, you know, who should get, get vaccinated first, um, instead of thinking about in six, eight, ten weeks down the line, we will have millions of doses of vaccines. How do we actually manage to vaccinate people with those doses? And here we only build up those vaccination centers, which is fine, but you have to complement it with an additional strategy. For instance, how do you use GPs um, who give vaccines for the flu, for all sorts of other diseases on a regular basis. They have the necessary expertise. You also don't have to, everything that I read about those vaccines now is you don't have to sort of shock freeze them um, with minus 70 degrees. So it's it should be possible to, you know, just to go to a GP and say, hey, uh, if you're next in line, um, please give me a jab and that should be fine. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, also things like AstraZeneca, for instance. Uh, I read that AstraZeneca is used in Morocco. They don't have any problems. People are, you know, willing to get the vaccine. The only country that seems to exist in the world where people actually seem to suggest that it's better not to get a vaccine or not to be vaccinated against COVID and then actually taking the vaccine from AstraZeneca. I think that's, that's again, one of those typical German things where some kind of media... Um, report went out of control because I mean simply people got yeah, the wrong well, impression. <laughs> but, but it also feels like uh, uh, Germany really it does lack in digitalization and they really like scream Absolutely. and want now to 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 do something to improve it um, because 
Uh, they, I mean, it, it does feel because when I uh, arrived to, to Germany like two years ago, they were like they like were a few places where they accepted credit cards, and for me from Moscow, where like well, people who sell uh, flowers on the street, they do have like bank accounts, and you can just send them without any fees, like just instantaneously all those. Um, transfers that was like really surprising because then you like in Russia we we do we do think that Germany is something like a place where everything works perfectly fine, um, but then it, it, it seems like it's not. But on the on the other hand, I don't know how to feel about this because I feel digitalization and bureaucratization of like this digital sphere it does it does lead to some authoritarian tendencies because then there's some people who control the data they can well i mean it leads to the risk right i mean yeah. not per se but you're right i mean of course and the question is is it the state or is it a private company that owns the data and i think the 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 interesting thing is that germans seem to suggest that it's a risk maybe that's also because of history that of course the state has access to those, that data on the other hand germans are very happy using stuff like whatsapp or facebook who honestly don't have the best record when it comes to data privacy and data protection so i mean at times they are ready to hand out their data um, mostly to private companies and on the other hand they seem to have a very well bizarre skepticism when it comes to um, actually providing data for the state i think that will be another debate that we'll have after after covid because i mean if we think if you think about the way that You do containment strategies, for instance, in places like Taiwan or South Korea. Mm -hmm. I think they might have other ideas how to, for instance, um, check on quarantines, um, stuff like that. Also, do contact tracing so that people are not informed 14 days after they were in contact with an infected person to actually be sent to quarantine. I mean, I heard ridiculous stories in May where people were informed by the local health authorities 10 days after they were in contact with an infected person and they already at times had been developing symptoms and therefore simply stayed at home. But I thought, well, I mean, it would have made sense to be informed earlier. And I mean, where it took one or two days in South Korea, it took up to two weeks in Germany. And I mean, of course, that's ridiculous. And I mean, then you also cannot fight a pandemic successfully, mm. or at least okay. it makes it more difficult. <laughs> I want to switch to Canada, but I cannot really, uh, before switching to the topic of Canada, I cannot really ask what you think about European Union, because I will just lay down my thoughts. I like. Well, I just had a thought, because uh, if I take all kind of governments and all kind of systems, the only thing that really excites me is the European Union. And the reason why, because it's such a unique... I mean, you you can really uh, dedicate your life to improving European Union, and there is a lot of good values in the European Union. And just for me, it's an incredible institution because there is a big future. Uh, but then, um, yeah, but but then there is like this story, for example, with like vaccination, and Great Britain does really great without European Union, which was, I guess, one of the biggest, I guess, achievements of Boris Johnson probably in his post. So, how do you feel about European Union? Because Like for me, it's a it's a great hope on the one hand, but on the other hand, uh, probably people in the future would say yes, we try to 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 build the European Union, but it's something that um, maybe will exist in some kind of like weird, not really semi-governmental form. So, what, what do you think? Again, a tricky question. Maybe I can I can use an anecdote because I actually some books fell out of my bookshelf yesterday. And um, the one I then picked up first was actually The European Dream by uh, Jeremy Rifkin, which was, I think, written, was written in the early 2000s. And it was basically 
an American telling the world that um, the sort of role model of any future kind of state or way to be governed was the European Union and that the US was sort of also on the decline in, in especially in terms of morals and economics and social well-being and um, that the European Union was the was the model. I think um, we see similar problems that um, I refer to with regard to the German national COVID strategy also with um, Europe and of course Brexit is one of the results and that is, is the European Union basically an economic market or is it more than that? Um, I personally would tend to say it's more than that but um, I think we now see some sort of exaggeration that I mean there are some groups in Europe who actually think that there is really the possibility to supplant a national identity you know of being French or German or Italian or Estonian or mm -hmm. Hungarian by something like a pan-European identity and I think you can highlight the benefits of being a European for instance you can go to any place in the European Union and pay as much money as you do in your home country because there are certain roaming rules for your you know using your mobile phone or you um, are gen you generally have freedom of movement of course these are great benefits you don't need to apply for a visa every time you move to another place but um, on the other hand I think that some of these aspects are apparently not well known to, to many many people and also people there, there seems to be some hesitancy or even open resistance to follow that kind of line. And of course, people are right that if you add an additional layer of government, mm -hmm. it just takes more time. Yeah. Um, and then the question is, do you really have to regulate everything at the level of mm -hmm. Brussels or the European Union? And um, there are all sorts of cliches, right? Like uh, the form of bananas and stuff like that. Also things that never were true in the first place, but that still seem to persist as urban legends. Um, but I think there is a certain way of detachment of, of the European Union and its entire system and most of the German, or the, the German mm. as well, but the European population. Um, and I don't know how you can overcome that because, I mean, there were also plans in Brussels to increase the importance of the European Parliament and to work on that, what is called the democratic deficit. I think the democratic deficit is there. I think Brussels has brilliant bureaucrats mm -hmm. and they actually don't cost that lot, that much. I mean, if you compare it to nationwide um, bureaucratic structures, it's actually not that expensive. So they um, actually produce a lot of results for the kind of um, uh, work they do. But on the other hand, I don't know whether you have to harmonize regulations to such an extent in all, all different sorts of sectors. Um, so, I mean, um, yes. if you want to, I don't know, dig up the street in a German place where you really have to ask whether a Portuguese construction company should also be able to do that, I mean, that's again maybe also an exaggeration from my side, but I mean that may create problems for the acceptance of the European Union. So again, I'm, I'm torn. I, I, I like the idea as such, but I think we need to have an open discussion whether um, we really want to um, have something like this ever closer union that some people call for. I personally think it's, it's dangerous to do that. I mean, if you, if you want to have a a European Union that eventually supersedes the, supersedes, um, mm -hmm. the nation state. I think that won't work and uh, we do have, especially the Nordic countries now, 
who will oppose it, or the Netherlands, um, even Austria. So, I mean, um, I think we, we really have to come to, to a different understanding. And if you talk about Hungary and Poland and the questions in how far they also have at least hollowed out their, I wouldn't necessarily call it democracy, but I mean, rather that sort of the separation of powers, right? I mean, that, um, that that's a problem as well, because I mean, um, on the other hand, it's also a problem if you have a Germany under Merkel who um, then tries to tell the remaining European Union partners how they should um, work on work on the refugee issue. I mean, and just simply take in refugees. Um, so I think there are a lot of. I mean, you you cannot you cannot deny the fact that there are. Um, certain power structures in the European Union and places like the Baltic states that are small or um, places like maybe Slovakia or now Croatia, Slovenia, they are small countries and they simply don't have that much power. I mean, as, as France and, and Germany and France and Germany are no longer those, you know, that, that European motor as it used to mm -hmm. be called. Because, I mean, even France, the, Fran the French have good ideas, mm -hmm. but then the Germans never respond, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Macron has, has put up so many ideas on defense, for instance, yeah. and uh, I really nobody ever followed, followed through on that. But I guess it's, it's, it's a long process to what he wants to, 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 to be. To be uh, he wants to make European Union autonomous and security affairs, because for me, uh, it doesn't really make sense because... I mean, Germany, France, they're all like very powerful countries and then they kind of rely on NATO. And then for me, why they should rely on NATO and why the US should decide the fate of like Europe and like Russia-EU relations when like Europe can have its own voice and it's not like if uh, NATO troops uh, like were gone in one day, like Russia would start like a war, like thinking, oh yeah, I can really conquer like uh, Germany and France because it's still, uh, they still have military, right? And they can cooperate. And then if you combine like those military power, maybe it's, it's pretty, it's pretty good deterrent, so to speak. And then France also has uh, nuclear weapons. So for me, uh, the issue is uh, like I don't see like a very powerful European Union uh, and NATO at the same time. So for me, it's like security should be the part of like European debate uh, because then I think they could figure out like problems in Ukraine. They can figure out like uh, stuff with Russia. Uh, and they don't really need to 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 go to China and then as the US wants uh, to engage like European Union and NATO into China phase, they don't need it. I think because like why should they care? They're not like Asian countries. So for example, well, I mean, <laughs> um, everything you say I think would be well received in Paris, and where they see it the same way. But also, of course, that means investing in the military and actually having military capabilities. And I mean. Mm -hmm. You also know that, I mean, the German Bundeswehr has a lot of military equipment, but I mean, most of it actually doesn't function. So, I mean, 80 to 10, 90 percent of tanks are not, um, you know, uh, op I, I mean, cannot be used. Um, we have the same thing with submarines, um, Navy ships, and all sorts of other military equipment. And I think um, if you now see the latest developments are happening over the past two, three weeks, that um, we actually now have um, an opening up of of PESCO, right, of, of um, two members beyond the European Union <clears throat> and not only Canada 
um, doing that because they are based in Latvia now anyway, but also of the, Europe, uh, of the United States. I think that's, that's an interesting signal. Um, on the one hand, it's certainly, I would interpret it as a way that Washington thinks that their Europeans could maybe try to go it alone. Um, but on the other hand, I also think it's, it's the right assessment that the Europeans cannot sort it out themselves. I mean, if, if Germans were to invest more heavily, also work, look at, at interoperability, um, yes, the Europeans could fight off any Russian threat in that sense yeah. um, together without the United States. But I think there must be some sort of political will. And um, I think it's due to the lack of will of the Germans that it, it, it doesn't work. So, I mean, it would have to be otherwise the Franco-British axis. And I don't think that happens because, I mean, how? Yeah. The Brits are no longer in the EU. So, um, yeah. so I, I think actually the... the there won't be something like a European, like a real standalone European security policy or strategy. I mean, well, maybe they call it strategy as a paper. <laughs> it, I don't. I don't think it will ever materialize in the next, at least not in the next ten years. Yeah, um, because for me, the, the biggest problem is, I guess, like Russian. Uh, I, w I wouldn't call it threat, but like Russian problem, and uh, uh, like what, like I guess today or yesterday, it's so like a brilliant uh, comment uh, from one like Russian expert, like in German, German Russian expert. He said like, what's what's our strategy is like to wait when Putin is gone, and then like to like surprisingly realize that probably other Europe, like like even democratic like Russian president would have kind of the same strategy because like Russian strategy takes its roots not in in terms of like Putin is a threat leader um, but because Russia has its own kind of security interests and the problem for me that uh, the US doesn't th think about Russia in this like normal European term it thinks about Russia in this like imperial Soviet power which is like wrong because they do need to solve those uh, problems and like problem with Ukraine and all this stuff because I, I expect some uh, kind of uh, in, in the nearest like two three years some kind of escalation uh, and even though they I, I just monitor Russian media and they do seem like prepare people for some kind of escalation in the Ukraine military escalation because um, like relations between the US and like Russia like definitely at its lowest point and for me when when we talked about at the beginning of the podcast it's like the most dangerous time because it, it feels like the situation is sort of like Russia I mean Russia doesn't really have um, a future now in European Union or like the future with Europe and the only power it has is kind of like this big military power that it developed in 20 years. And then it's like, uh, there is like a Chekhov uh, uh, proverb, when you have a gun, it should kind of like, uh, when you have a gun in, in, in the story, well, and it should, it should one, um, so someone should use it, because like, why do you need a gun? So like, the Russia has been developing all this military equipment and stuff, and I think if uh, like, the European Union or the US doesn't offer Russia at least some kind of accommodation or some kind of like a, a de-escalation or detente, as you can call it, then there would be like escalation because I don't see, I don't feel like how Russian strategists um, can be satisfied with current situation in the world. And uh, it, it seems like economically Russia is really weak, which kind of like as uh, with the Germany before World War II, which like kind of tends to lead to some problems and tends to lead to some aggression and nationalism. And that's why I think, like, um, I, I, I would... But what, what do you think would the be, be the way out for, for European... I if you were to say, mm -hmm. you know, I'm Russian, mm -hmm. but 
I'm now sort of an interim advisor to Joe Biden mm -hmm. or Angela Merkel or Emmanuel Macron. Mm -hmm. What should they do? I would say just sit and talk and just consider like what Russians want. For example, um, stop uh, stop increasing uh, military presence near like your borders. Stop increasing military presence in Latvia. Stop increasing military presence in Poland. When uh, vis-a-vis, you can say, well, stop increasing military presence in Kaliningrad and stuff like this. Let's talk about all this military equipment. I mean, uh, we we could. Uh, we could come up with the same kind of strategy as they did in the 60s and 70s. The, the thing is, like in the 60s, it took like Caribbean missile crisis to realize that that's, that can be it. That, you know, we kind of like play Russian roulette every time, and uh, if something goes really wrong, uh, the world can, as Elon Musk says, you know, it can be like World War III, of course. It's not like, for me, like nuclear weapons doesn't really guarantee the fact that um, there, there won't be like nuclear war. We should really like try to like, and I, I would say it's all about international relations. We shouldn't we shouldn't forget that international relations first of all about uh, the idea to preserve peace and not like to contain Russia or like Russia maybe says like you know to about like imperial powers. It's it's all about like preserving peace and well if you need to kind of like um, um, to to not to be friends but to reach to, even to authoritarian government to save the peace that I guess that's a good decision because uh, in the long run what you want to do is like to save peace in Europe that's that's my thoughts I mean um, because I don't see how they can uh, solve the problem and I, if, if they continue this strategy as they as they do now it seems like escalation is uh, almost inevitable and impossible to to kind of uh, to prevent this escalation I mean. I don't want to. I mean, the NATO strategists would, of course, say, you know, if we actually pull our troops out of Estonia, of yeah. Latvia, of Lithuania, of Poland, if we don't extend or continue with the sanctions regime because of of Ukraine, we actually embolden Russia, and they will actually um, increase their efforts to gain additional territory. Now, I'm not saying that this is sort of. Uh, correct, but I have the impression it's it's a little bit like the chicken and the egg thing, right? It's always the question that there is one party blaming the other that they started first and that what they do is a reaction instead of an action that then leads to a certain dynamic. And I can see the spiraling out of control. Um, I think something where you also see it's a completely different field. We don't have to discuss that, but I mean something that um, you, where you can often see that is the way how... Um, for instance, attacks from the Gaza Strip are um, reported about in German media that always seem to have that, you know, if there is a, then retaliation by Israel, that um, sometimes they seem to suggest that the retaliation is the first action instead of that it's a reaction to, um, to rockets being um, directed at, at Israeli territory. And now, of course, that's a long story of that of that conflict. But I mean, um, you also see the conflict parties always referring that you know they just reacted, and um, it, it's always difficult to solve a problem or a conflict if you have um, if you are not able to actually at least understand the other side, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it means something else to say, okay, if I were to be in your shoes, I could understand why you behave the way you behave or why you think that's the case. And with Russia, it's, um, it's of course, um, tricky. And it goes back to the 2 plus 4 treaty talks um, of German reunification, where apparently 
Gorbachev and, and Shevardnadze back then said that they that it basically was off limits for NATO to extend to the east, but then people in the west or NATO said, well, yes, we discussed that maybe in the talks, but I mean, we never sort of had that in writing and it's not part of the contracts, therefore we can extend um, on our eastern flank. And it's, yeah, I mean, again, I think Germany is a problem in there because I mean, if you, if you look at Nord Stream 2, I wouldn't, I, I don't have a final opinion on whether it's good or bad. What I think is bad is that Germans once again took a unilateral decision without actually talking to the Poles, talking to the Ukrainians, because of course if you have your natural gas from Russia being shipped to Germany without actually crossing those other countries, you do create geopolitical facts or you actually allow you, Russia to use or wield additional power and that's of course to basically tell the Ukrainians, hey, you see those are the pipelines and if we want we can cut you off from, from gas supplies and that will have an impact. So I mean you can, you can use that as a political weapon. And I think um, Germans don't have a lot of strategists who mm -hmm. actually can see that mm -hmm. or reflect on that. I mean we have a, not a very large strategic community and also don't seem to have a lot of clever strategists. I think there are way more clever strategists in Russia in Washington, oh, I mean, in Paris, <laughs> um, they seem to, I mean, I mean, not exist in Germany. I mean, it looks uh, then those strategists uh, either do they like do their job really badly, or I mean, they're not really good strategists because now, as we as we just discussed, it's like the lowest point, and I mean, escalation is pretty possible in terms of like I would say like some military clash like in Latvia, Lithuania, or like Estonia is pretty feasible. And then the question is whether like NATO would actually defend Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania in terms of whether they really want to have like real war with Russia. Because uh, it seems like uh, I guess Putin actually told this once. Uh, like like Russia right now is sort of like this not small animal, but kind of like maybe not biggest animal in the animal kingdom, but it's in the in the like corner. You know, it's, it doesn't have any economic leverage, it, it does have sort of like big kind of teeth that it can use to kind of like uh, escalate situation and that's kind of it. Um, and for me the whole this situation with Navalny and new sanctions, um, I even kind of stopped supporting Navalny because when his opponents uh, with his team asks uh, like Joe Biden to impose sanctions and discuss it with Merkel and then I see like Tikhanovskaya like and how they like give her money and then he has like this tour around Europe like he's like she is like president of Belarus. I don't think it's a good strategy to be honest because then you kind of like tease this kind of like animal in the corner and then you kind of like lead to problems. I would say so. But I mean you have the same situation in, in Germany where again because we talked about left and right the interesting thing is if you look at the people uh, in the Linke, the left party mm -hmm. and the AFD um, you do have those people who are often called Moscow Vorsteher, right? <clears throat> or Moscow Vorsteherin, which is sort of a pejorative term to say, well, you're Russia friendly. And I mean, I have the impression that there seems to be this black and white thing that if you, I mean, we, we still have no real idea how to constructively engage with Russia. Yeah. I, I think that um, Russia has a very assertive geopolitical posture 
that somehow has to be reined in in a way, but of course it doesn't, so it, it's not cozying up and going to Vladimir Putin's um, presidential palace, shaking hands and saying everything is okay, he's the lupenreiner Democrat, right? I mean, this, this perfect Democrat. And on the other hand, it's not trying to overthrow him by um, then financing yeah, some true. NGOs or, or opposition leaders who sort of are then also potential victims or puppets. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not well informed enough about Navalny to have a final judgment on that, but I think that was always a criticism that Putin leveled at um, Western states, also why he also reduced the possibility for, for NGOs to operate in Russia. Yeah. Um, some say he's just, you know, um, seeing ghosts and, I mean, uh, sort of feels threatened, even if there is no threat. Again, I, I'm really not a Russia expert. So. <laughs> yeah. but, but I think that the way that they, that they approach Russia is that, you know, you either have to confront Putin um, by threatening him that we have nuclear weapons and all sorts of other things, or we, in terms of military equipment, or we uh, basically say we are best friends and accept everything he does. Or I don't think it sounds very convincing. That's <laughs> true. Yeah, I guess uh, let's just wrap it up. I guess we haven't had enough time to discuss Canada. Maybe next time. Uh, I guess like last question would be as uh, your managing director of uh, graduate, graduate School of North American Studies, maybe you can give some advice to young scholars and uh, just young professionals because uh, I guess it's it's important time to give maybe a good advice to people who want to start maybe academic career or just general who probably will graduate this year from uh, not like from JFK or something like this. <laughs> That's a tricky question because I know that it's actually hard to get interviews as such. And when you have interviews, I think most of them are now held online. And I think that really changes, changes the dynamic. I think mm -hmm. it's not so much a recommendation, but rather my view on maybe also the irrational aspects of maybe job seeking or mm. or positions is that for me one of the biggest myths uh, still seem to be that people um, actually put out something like a job description if you fulfill five of the seven bullet points you should certainly mm. apply there is this interesting phenomenon that um, especially male candidates who only seem to fulfill two of the seven still apply and uh, women who fulfill all seven still don't apply because they think they're not fit for the job. That's something I find bizarre in terms of a sort of gender dynamic. But I mean, the, the other thing that I, that I find interesting is that um, people who select someone and there is something like a gut feeling or whether you sort of fit into a team or whether there is some sort of personal chemistry. And I think... Um, this idea that you have to rationalize that and see, okay, this is the best candidate, um, is sometimes not so much the case. I mean, some people have the most brilliant CV, but I mean, simply by because of their personality, wouldn't really yeah. fit into into a team, and that makes it hard for for HR people to mm -hmm. um, actually find the right people. Because I see, if I see people on the screen, I have not the same possibility to really. To read them. So, to read them, yeah. yes. So I think that's, that's the, the way how they behave, how mm -hmm. they react. Especially if you do that in a group meeting, right? Where mm -hmm. you usually sit and it's mm -hmm. a committee of five people selecting one candidate. Mm -hmm. 
if those five are also like individuals mm -hmm. as a sort of video tile on the screen if you do a zoom meeting or something like that but, but it's also that makes it difficult for people for me it's personal experience it's a little bit frightening when you have like some like a lot of people sitting with you in one room and or you're interviewed kind of yeah, scrutinized by a couple of people for me it's easier when you have just like interview one-on-one -on -one, and then probably you have second round of interviews with more people or something like then you can kind of have like a established connection at least with one person and but then when you don't have a connection with anyone in the room and they all kind of like scrutinize you that's that's tough all right i guess uh, thank you very much Uh, I hope to see maybe some uh, some other time in our podcast. And thanks for this opportunity. And um, yeah, just want to thank you. And thank you. And um, I'll be happy to do a Connect Canada podcast yes. at some stage. All right. And, uh, <laughs> um, yeah. Have a nice, have an amazing day. And uh, see I you wish soon. you all the best for the rest of the series. And I'm curious to hear what <laughs> what, what the other guests will say. All right. Thank you very much and um That's it for today. Thanks for listening to us. I hope that this conversation launches a series of talks with uh, international relations and political science experts, professionals, and scholars. If you like our podcast, please share it with your friends. And as always, enjoy your day and see you on the next episode.